Welcome back to Recurrent Events 6, and back with me is Mr. Wesley Shantz. After two interview days, we're finally back and at it together, and I suppose our interview today will be a topic, and the topic is the LA Union, the UTLA teacher strike of January 18th for, I believe, six days until 24th or so. And so welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Hey, yeah, it's been, you know, uh, something we've been meaning to kind of get to talk about and try to figure out um, for well, a few weeks now. So it's good to, good to talk to you about it. Yeah, I'm happy to be talking about it, especially in light of the four sources that we read in preparation for this. We read two pieces by the LA Times, one by the Capital, I believe, Gazette. Um, let me just check that really quick. Capital Journal, excuse me. And then one also, which was... Um, I hope I can find it. Uh, a USA Today. Yes, after reading these uh, articles, it looks like this will not be the only walkout by teachers as well, that there's one brewing in, I believe, Denver, and that there's one that had happened before this one as well. Um, I thought there might also be one in Northern California. I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly. Can you correct me on that, Wes? It looks as if there are going to be at least three walkouts. There may have already been two. Oh yeah, I'm. I haven't been following the story that closely. Uh, just recently, I know that this has been um, contrasted a bit with the big, teacher, the big teacher walkouts last year that were on the Red for Ed, um, look slogan or whatever. Um, yes. And I know that in terms of charter schools in particular, there have been very few uh, strikes ever actually um right. and and this this uh la strike was kind of connected with a um one of the charter networks there struck in solidarity with them and in uh, chicago shortly before that there had also been one uh through a, a, a network there um but that that's an element of the story that i think we should try to uh, tease out a little bit um, as we... Yeah, and I, I think it would be very interesting to talk to to people that had thoughts about that. And in fact, uh, two of the articles we read were sent to me by uh, Santa Ana uh, School District uh, teacher. So one who's closer to the LA area than I am even in San Diego, but um, somebody who's involved with their technology curriculum up there, whereas I am, of course, a charter school teacher down here. And I thought that that, that happened to be one of the more interesting pinpoints um, of this this strike, besides the desire for additional resources, counselors, librarians, again an increase in pay. I think they got an increase in pay last year um, due to something like striking. Uh, I can't remember. It was something like they were going to have 17% increase statically over time or something, and now they're demanding an additional 6%. Um, but that so those were sort of their demands. But the the final demand they made because they um the district had agreed to meet not meet them halfway but to give them most of what it is they they wanted but they they had to add in before they would agree um a future memorandum on charter schools um and part of what their claim is is that charter schools are diverting resources from them and um and necessary funds that would help to improve the schools <clears throat> whereas the USA today article we read, which was an opinion piece, seemed to be of the opinion that actually in LA, the charter schools are outperforming the public schools with 40% uh, less funding, less re fewer resources. And so uh, it's actually, that's actually blame mongering rather than identifying a problem. 
And I thought that might be interesting to you too, just because you do have some experience working with charter schools as well. Your, uh, your you know, your first full-time gig, I believe, was mm -hmm. at a charter school. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've taught um, in charter schools and had good experiences there. And I think that's, um, it's an interesting question and it goes to the question also of the Janus court case which dealt with um, the requirement that teachers pay into the union even if they were not members of the union. Uh, and so in Janus, that was struck down, that, that uh, was ruled unconstitutional. And so- Good. Yeah, and this, we'll explain what the Janus versus AFSCME is later. Right, it's something you'll see if you read any of these articles about these um, LA strikes, um, because that was, highlighted very early on as, as part of their um, concern. I think it's connected with this charter school concern. Both of them are a question of resource allocation, if you like, you know, this um, mentality that there's a, there's a certain amount of money uh, which has to be spent on this, you know, invaluable thing called education, right? And so if you're going to try to improve the educational outcomes, then it might make sense to you know, look at where that money is actually going. And so in both these cases, right, charter schools and the Janus decision, less of the money is going to traditional um, public schools and their, their union representatives, and instead are going to leaner and newer, more innovative um, and less traditional um, models, basically, right? And these charter right. schools, as you say, the charter schools tend to, although not always, they tend to have better outcomes. So it's, it's an interesting dilemma. Unless somebody say, well, of course the public schools will get worse if they have less funding. Come on, guys, you're supposed to be intellectuals. Um, this USA Today article uh, we have, and I'll, I'll link each one of these articles in the description, um, says, in the 2006-2007 school year, the Los Angeles Unified School District spent less than $9,500 per average daily attendance, um, the De California Department of Education's funding metric. But a decade later, it spent more than $13,450, a 42% increase, far outpacing inflation. So they were given more money per student a decade later. Let's see if the outcomes increase. If there was a positive correlation between spending and outcomes in a traditional cl classroom. Despite the increased funding, LA students still lag behind. It appears across the nation with proficiency rates of less than 25% in all subjects and all grades. And so what, um, I suppose I should say, what does that say to you, Wes? Does that sound like um, an issue of misallocation, an issue of prejudice, an issue of charter schools just being based on a better model, which seems to be the claim that this USA Today article makes that, you know, we're not against teachers when we say we want current educational models to fail. We just think that the model is old and outdated and that new models could replace it and that that is the industry standard and that's what a charter school is supposed to be represent. So I think it's important, yeah, to, to look at some of the language um, that's like, in this discussion, and that that article uh, comes from it's it's an opinion piece by right CEO and founder of this Center for Education Reform, which uh, is basically it seems like if you look at their website, basically a 
in Oregon that promotes charter schools. So I think we would have to look at that data more um, and see where they're getting those numbers and sort of how other maybe similarly oriented and oppositionally oriented nonprofits and um, you know lobbyists are talking about this because I think a lot of this has to do with the kind of narrative that you're trying to frame around it like anything right so if you talk about it in terms of uh, charter schools and what they can offer then you're going to have one kind of discussion because you know if these numbers hold up then yeah and I, I i'm inclined to trust that they do based on my experience although it's limited and then yeah i mean obviously that seems like the better way to go to promote charter schools innovation better outcomes for students is obviously what we want however if you frame the narrative in terms of a a broader uh inequality or um social i don't know uh institutional problem right uh, to do with the power of working people to do with race and poverty and issues like that then you're going to have a very different discussion and although outcomes and data are going to enter into that discussion they're going to be used in a really different way and they're going to be talked about and framed in a really different way and I mean these people uh, who, who took their jobs, you know, put their jobs on the line to strike, you know, clearly believe in what they're doing. So it's, it's really quite complicated, is what I'd say as a first pass. Sure. And just to illustrate some of the complications of the issue, again, part of the thesis of this opinion piece, as you note, is that there is far more to this. As we are discovering as we go through Harry Potter, my good friend, Mr. Wesley Shantz, there are layers to this world in which we live. And um, the claim of this author seems to be that because of this Janus decision versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, and um, because of the reduction of union power, um, I think only just a year ago, yeah, it was decided June 27th, 2018, so not even a year ago, basically what was decided was that people who worked in union-dominated industries uh, instead of having to have paid into the union at a reduced rate, and I forget what the term for that reduced rate is because I just learned it, um, which had been decided in this case by precedent uh, called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education um, in, I think, 1977. Um, we can look that up quite a bit, quite a while ago. Well, in this most recent decision, just uh, a few months ago, six months ago, it was decided that no, that a person would no longer have to pay into a union or union fees if one did not work for that union because that would be an infringement on their, their um, First Amendment right because they would be required to pay into something they didn't believe in, which would be effectively sort of like, you know, taxation without representation, which is what America is founded on. And that um, part of what this strike is about, because the union is, of course, the most powerful um, advocacy arm that exists in California um, by the numbers and by total wealth. And we, can we can pull up those numbers as well, that um, there are some people in power. And so part of the claim of a union is that it represents the working class. And uh, part of the original use 
for unions was helping factory conditions in the late 19th, early 20th century. And we, we can probably do a, an episode on that, an informational episode on that if, if we want. But um, a claim that seems to be being brought to light here is that like there are now career politicians, there are now career union uh, uh, officials. And there are in the union in having acquired power, and this is a Dante point about both the Catholic Church and um, the bankers of Florence, um, which I've heard recently is still sort of true. There are five or six major families that have been ruling for the last 500 years. That now that the union has so much power, it's, it might less care about students and those who are historically impoverished or have had unequal access to rights or or, or, or resources, or in this case, privileges. Um, you can see the concept creep there, I think. But um, that now the union more cares about its own benefits and that it might be striving back towards power. And that it might even use the argument that if it were to acquire the power that it once had, it could do more good. But that is certainly a different argument from um, they are doing this solely for the good of their students. Though they do make some explicit claims about wanting uh, additional resources for their students, librarians, uh, I think counselors, nurses, um, as well as smaller class sizes. Yeah, and those are pretty concrete things which if you look at, you know, trying to teach a class of 20 kids versus trying to teach a class of 40 kids, there's, there's no comparison, right? Like you want to have smaller classes and you want to have kids be able to go to the nurse or the counselor if they're having uh, something happening like like a, a health problem, um, a, a psychological problem, or a social problem that's not really within the teacher's purview to to handle in the classroom setting. Like you want to have a place for that within the schools. And so, right. if if that's if that's the the demand, then that's one thing. But if it's wrapped together with, as you say, the unions um, feeling threatened by court cases that are chipping away at at their established uh, control, um, their their funds, or or at looking at this kind of groundswell of of charter school organizations, which are outperforming and um, spending less, you know, then that's sort of a, again a, a really different thing. And and if you bind those things together, so those those benefits for students, those smaller classes, those uh, resources within the building like nurses and counselors, you bind that together with the other thing, which is um, in in theory separable, right? But it, it can be extremely effective to do that to kind of mobilize your your teachers and, and even the students who uh, you know when they're quoted they seem to support what their what their teachers are doing. Now I don't know that again if you talked to individual teachers that you'd be able to sort of disentangle those two sides of the question. That's possible, but, um, and, and we'll also have to see what actually does happen with the charter schools in LA. They currently serve something like a fifth to a fourth of the students there. So if they do decide to put a moratorium on that, you know, that doesn't, I don't think that that is quite the same thing as them uh, improving their their uh, their actual ability to teach the kids who are um, not in those schools, right? Like, and right. to to offer those kids the same kinds of um, educational 
content and like processes that seem to be working in those schools. Right, and um, just to just to go into just for a second because um, one of the articles from the LA Times, I believe yesterday, and um, I'm not sure if you remember what the proposition was uh, exactly, but there was a proposition uh, two or three decades ago that was put down in LA that made it so that um, the property tax rates of businesses would go up at a static rate, a steady rate, like a fixed 2% rate, rather than in um, in conjunction with either inflation or the market. So if say the uh, business are producing 100 times better income rather than getting a consistent 20 or 15% of that, they would only get the two additional percent. So businesses could make exorbitant uh, amounts of money. Um, according, well, you know, that's sort of the public sort of liberal perspective on the idea. And so part of what these schools have wanted to do is to use either this $21 billion uh, uh, resource that the state has. So they want to take money from the state. And remember that the state is a different political entity with a different, you know, managing and uh, 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 pecuniary branches, fiscal branches, than the, the county or the district level. And they want to take money from this surplus and allocate it into their, their, uh, their state and, you know, or excuse me, into their district, potentially. But the other idea they have is to overturn this proposition. And I don't, I don't know. Do you remember what the number of this proposition was? I feel like it was like 21 or something, but I don't want to misquote it on the air. Um, do you, you recall the one I'm talking about, right? Uh, I think it was another article that we read. Um, and we, I can again put that in the description. But in any case, part of how, or how schools are funded is from the property tax of their local district. So if you are a poor district, and uh, in a poor district, you either own poor le or own land that doesn't cost much, or you live more likely in rent, possibly rent-controlled land that is low, again, low cost and uh, low rent. Because of that, well, there's just less money coming into the schools, less money for everything, right? In, you know, the buildings, the facilities, management, uh, security, uh, the teachers. And so you're either going to find teachers from that direct area, generally speaking, because they're the sorts of people that can afford to live in that area and, um, and, and work at that sort of job. Or, or, I mean, with a young, talented teacher, uh, a place that has you know, let fewer resources to offer, they're going to look for additional resource, you know, places that can offer them more. And so we sometimes interpret that as uh, creating an inequality. But what I think I want to try and pinpoint here is that where the inequality comes from isn't some systemic um, prejudice so much as the poverty of the area surrounding the school. That it simply, because of how it's funded, it simply has less. It's sort of like if I have $5 and you have $10, I can only buy $5 worth of things. And so essentially what's being asked for by these lower income schools, which are underperforming, are, are sort of, you know, bailouts, uh, as it were, um, or, or, you know, uh, it's, they're, they're asking for charity, right? They, they need more money, or, or at least the theory is, if they are given more money, and we're seeing that this, there's no direct correlation here, they will do better. But I suppose just to add a correlate to this it is, um, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to ask this right, but we have seen the funds mismanaged 
at least over the last 10 years from 2006, 2007 to the most recent time, we met, we checked how much students are received or how much money is being spent per student, which is now more than it was, um, though outcomes are as bad as they've been. Um, I'm just not sure. Hmm. I, I think there's a problem. I don't think we're identifying the correct solution might be the broadest way to say it. Well, and that seems like, again, part of what the charter schools are offering is a model for how to experiment and how to find things that do uh, a better job of, of actually teaching students, right? And, and giving them like a better learning environment um, without necessarily spending more money per student. Um, it might also mean that the teachers who work at those schools are working more hours, are picking up more extra kinds of uh, tasks, and potentially those teachers are not even getting paid as much as union-represented teachers within the public schools. But um, that, that leads to other sorts of problems for the teachers, like teachers will burn out or they'll try to find uh, a public school job that will be less demanding, better paid, uh, have better benefits and things like that. Um, but again, that's a related, but in theory, separable issue from the one that we're kind of focusing on as teachers, which is the outcomes for the students, whether they're learning, whether they're performing in measurable ways and in maybe less tangible ways. Like when you look at the character and the way that character is modeled and spoken about at um, charter schools, it looks a lot different. It feels different there. The, the community is very different. And that's, you know, not solely um, related to, to an amount of money that you can spend, right? Like, ultimately, I don't think that um, the amount of money and the outcome can be linked just philosophically. That's that seems wrong to me. And I think that the numbers are actually bearing that out. I think it matters much more who is present there and what kinds of behaviors they're modeling and what kinds of ideals they're aspiring towards. And that to me is something that is, you know, very, uh, very inspiring about the, 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 um, the teachers who are, are taking these actions. Like they, again, are clearly believing in something. Now, whether that is limited to the amount of money and the, the ultimate bargain agreement that they come out with, or whether that is like their you know, dedication to trying to improve what they're doing, I, I mean, I think that at least a little bit of it is the latter, right? And so this is all part of a, a long and slow process, um, which could actually be beneficial for students in the long run if it means if it you know entails teachers kind of rededicating themselves to their their calling right but but that's rather idealistic i think yeah and i just you know so something we're thinking about talking about soon and i just finished a, a big conference with you know this big partner of google for education called illuminate and the you know the marquee speech that we had to listen to yesterday that people stood up and clapped for was by this theorist who's never been in the classroom named, from UCLA named uh, Pedro Noguera. And you know, if he's listening, I, I, 
I would love to be on a stage with him because he's a very charismatic and interesting and obviously he cares a lot sort of man, but he's, he's not somebody with his feet on the ground by any means. He's not a practitioner and that comes through because something that he identified as a problem with teaching is to a crowd full of 1600 teachers who had paid around $700 each to come there is that complacency was a problem. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not in any way would I say that's correct. Not at any level of education. That's by no means true. Um, and that, that's borne out completely by what you say about charter school teachers. Why would they accept less money and work harder? Often, often in populations of people that are not their own. You worked in Arizona. You're from Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. I work in Escondido. I'm from Atlanta. Why would we, why would we do this sort of thing if complacency were the problem? It's absolutely not. Um, and so just, you know, something I encourage people who, who are in education and technology to think about is the problem is not the people that are trying to solve the problem by any means. And there are a lot of very talented and good people. The problem is not identifying the appropriate solution to the problem. Um, and I would say I saw quite a bit of that. Um, I saw quite a bit of that in this, at this techno technology conference. There's, there are a lot of people trying to solve problems that don't exist without solving the problems that certainly do. Um, and a lot of good people could be used in a lot better ways. And yeah. perhaps that's what part of the strike is about. Perhaps they're not able to put their finger on the issue. And that's mm -hmm. the problem. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that is, a, it's an interesting, I think there's an interesting kind of parallel there. Yeah. To, to a larger sense of, um, I don't, I don't know how closely they're related, but the sense that um, institutions are not functioning as well as the people who make them up, right? Who, who do believe in what they're doing. And I think that it kind of has a, a strange parallel to the uh, government shutdown, which was going on at the same time as the yes. LAT strike. Um, they good. both seem yeah. to be sort of symptomatic of, of a deeper, again, sort of philosophical uh, concern about um, means and ends, about you know how much bargaining and how much compromise is is doable when people have different core beliefs you know and you know in principle these are the kinds of things that you get to discuss in educational settings um in a way that's that's different from how they have to be discussed in political arenas um however <laughs> as you see like the uh the educational and the political are not always um, possible to separate out. So, and, and to your point about like technology and how that enters into it, frankly, like if we don't humanistically figure this out, then pretty soon it's going to be figured out for us by technological means that we don't have a say in. So that's, that's right. And, right and the technology, I mean, as much as people claim, and this was a data conference and as everybody knows, I like neuroscience and I like data. Something they were saying is, Data is not magic. You have to ask the right questions. And so what I would say is we have to have the courage to ask the right questions because we, we've been dancing from prejudice to prejudice. And now we've become so scared of seeming prejudiced. 
and of being blackballed for asking, you know, a touchy question that I, I think we're losing our integrity as scientists and we're losing our integrity as educators because we're, again, just like a doctor, if, if there's a cancer, they have to figure out where it's coming from. Same with educators. If there's a problem, then we need to figure out where it's coming from and do our best to fix it, it you know, and to whatever extent we can. But I think also we need to remember, like the doctor, that the first dictum of education as well as of, of being a physician is, you know, do no harm. And I think that's something we need to be very careful about because now we are realizing just how complex a system it is within which we work. Like we don't even understand ourselves. How can we understand, you know, the, you know, a complex 350 million person democracy? It's like, it's impossible. So what we need to do is <laughs> work very hard and be very careful, I think. Well, yeah, yeah. And I think a big part of the discussion is again, how, how you approach um, setting the problem, right? Setting out the problem as something small scale, something that's within the reach of individuals and individual schools is, is one level to talk about it. And to talk about it at the district, the state, the national level is a totally different way to talk about it. Um, to talk about it in terms of teachers being hardworking versus complacent is totally different than talking about it in terms of unions and their sort of existential problem with charter schools, right? Like those are, those are really, really different things. Um, I think, uh, yeah, that courage would entail sort of like pointing that out and saying, okay, so like if we want to make uh, this a better school for kids to learn in, what do we need to do? Do we need to hire some nurses and counselors? Okay, how can we do that, right? Like we don't need to um, put a moratorium on charter schools in order to hire some nurses and counselors. That just right. is two totally right. different things. So you don't I'm, need to punish your sister to race better next week. Something that it looks like is going on in Virginia and Oakland, they, they're also kind of jumping on this the strike bandwagon right now. Um, there's a there's a comment in the one about Virginia that one of the, the last straws it says was the state. Here's, um, it says, Weingarten said that the last straw for many Virginia educators was seeing how readily lawmakers were able to come up with a, quote, bountiful set of tax breaks, end quote, for Amazon to open its HQ2 in the state. If the state can competitively invest in business development, the teachers say, it should be able to invest in its schools and teachers. According okay, to I want to pop. Oh, yeah. sorry. I just want to pause on that just because I want to explain this thinking because I don't think most people um, have this fully explained. The idea behind that would be that if you bring in Amazon and then you bring in high-skill employees who have to work there, those high-skill employees will drive up property rates by building more expensive homes and buying more expensive homes, which will then produce more property tax, which will then lead to better resources for schools. Now, I think this is very similar to what people call Reagan's trickle down economics. I'm not actually trying to support, you know, I'm, I'm, but I, I, I think people give that line of reasoning a bad rap. Whereas again, we did note that precisely one of the problems in LA is the lack of property tax leading to lack of funding and resources with those schools. If there is then an opportunity to bring property taxes up in your area, 
that will prima facie lead to better schools. And um, so that's why it's good to get industry into an area. Whereas it seems as if uh, so-called so corporations are receiving benefits there. Corporations are made up of their employees who are people who are local to the area who then can purchase goods in the area, which enrich it, which is just, I just wanted to explain that argument because growing up, I did not hear that argument ever. So I didn't understand it. Well, yeah, it, this, uh, I'm just quoting from an article on the intercept.com by Rachel Cohen. Um, it's from a couple of days ago now, uh, called coming off LA strike victory, a new wave of teacher protests take hold. So yeah, so that that's in one of the first paragraphs. So it's just like, I think I'm trying to point out the decision-making process that is sketched out there is one of resentment against a tax break for Amazon being right. the last straw, right? That's like what pushes you. And so you're acting on a, an impulse, which is, you know, grounded in something about education. But the thing that pushes you into political action is not about education at all. Or as you described, if you, if you actually analyze what it was, you would see that it would be actually beneficial for the educational outcomes if those are actually connected with the amounts of money that go into schools, which That's like right. Right. A, a journalist like a journalist like uh, Jonathan Kozel, uh, who studied a lot of schools, I think makes the case pretty powerfully that although more money doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes, having really poor schools does pretty much definitely mean you're going to have poor outcomes. Right. So his his books are are ones I'd recommend for people to, to look at as well. Well, that's very powerful because your claim seems to mirror the claim Dante makes about invidiousness or blindness, which is literally what it means in, in video in Latin, which is why those who are blind on the second terrace of purgatory are, are envious or those who are envious are blind. And in fact, it's considered one of the foundations of all sin to, think, to hate that which your brother has, the specific sin of Cain. And so... It seems as if what, what you are potentially outlining or observing from this narrative perspective is that these, these teachers, these educators, these unions don't, are not necessarily as pure of heart as we might think. With all the, all the information that we've gathered here together, one, if one wants to paint a full picture, that yes, 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 there are some tangibles that they want for their students that seem to be sort of perennial issues. But there does seem to be a sort of willful blindness to stoke the flames of resentment and to want that which one's brother has that one's brother has earned. Is that, is that something that you, you are at least keeping the door open to observing? Uh, I wouldn't use quite that kind of rhetoric about it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's in the back of my mind for sure, because this is... Uh, the kinds of things that we talk about, right? Uh, I would. I wanted to throw out one other author who has written a lot about unions in particular, and that's Studs Terkel. He's one of my favorites. He's ah. a great, great interviewer uh, and has a ton of books of transcriptions of condensed forms of, of his, his talks with people from all walks of life. And so, you know, a lot of them have to do with kind of the narrative of unions, where unions came from in America and where they kind of have tended in, in the more recent uh, generation to, to have gone. But, um, you know, he, he passed away about a decade ago now, so he didn't live to see this, this new kind of uh, wave of, of activism. 
Yeah, and that's so interesting. My father has given me at least one book by Stud Sterkle, and so it's interesting to see that perhaps there's it's time to get reading on that. And um, I'll make sure to include the links or at least the titles because um, Mark sent me two of these articles via um, via Word. So um, if I don't have the link, I'll at least have the title so that it can be looked up or I'll just find where it is online and put it on there because I do want to resource this correctly. I would like to also put up the appropriate uh, title for the proposition that I was mentioning that placed the fixed rates on property tax increase in LA to make sure that I got that correct. Um, because part of what we do here besides try and connect the dots is make sure, make damn sure we get the dots right. And, uh, you know, because what's the point? If we're playing outside the lines, we're not playing tennis, right, Wes? Yeah, there's, there's uh, lots of fun games that we are playing here, but um, we want to try to make it as fair as possible, I guess. Right, right. I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. I mean, you know, in a way, we're like new journalists. And obviously, you know, there, there are lots of talented journalists who far more deserve that title than we do as as podcasters, but I do also think we have our feet on the ground and our eyes open and we're, you know, speaking, uh, you know, and I think we're, we're cutting through. I, I think, you know, we're using our tongues as swords as Aristotle suggests, as well as the new Testament suggests we should, you know, cut through the nonsense as it were cut through with your tongue, pierce with your intellect. That's what a goal. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not the sort of thing you hear at most educational conferences, I, I would imagine. <laughs> not yet, not yet, not yeah. until we start giving the keynotes. We'll and, see. Um, you know, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, we'll work. You know, we'll, we'll let's, yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll rise to wherever we're meant to. Um, I guess Bernetta Latini would say that, so maybe it's incorrect, but um, Marco Lombardo <laughs> might agree. Uh, my dentists in the audience understand what I'm talking about here. And uh, maybe Cachaguita as well. All, all three canticles, all three perspectives on fate. In any case, I didn't know we were fated to talk so much about Dante when we were going to talk about an LA union teacher strike. But I, I would end this with a note that I think it's so interesting that charter school solidarity happened. Like there were some people from charter schools who supported the LA union who, when one of the, one of the, uh, I want to say keynotes, but cornerstones of the negotiations was the moratorium on charter schools. And so that, that just shows further self-sacrifice on the part of those in charter school movements. And that um, as an ancillary effect of this labor, uh, of this strike, I, I find myself respecting charter school teachers all the more. Yeah, here, here. Well, thanks again. That was a good one. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. All right. Happy Friday. Happy Friday.